Grow your business from News Talk with Gavin McLaughlin. Thanks to Euronext Dublin, the new home of the Irish Stock Exchange, supporting business for over 200 years. Hello and welcome to the Grow Your Business podcast. I'm Gavin McLaughlin and I'm here to help your business make money. Today we're looking at making acquisitions and I have two great guests here with me. Ted Webb is here. He's Managing Director of IBI Corporate Finance, probably Ireland's top advisors to companies looking to make acquisitions. And also here is Colin Culleton, Chief Executive of TPI Group, who has made growing via acquisition a key plank of his company's growth strategy. First though, Colin, tell us a bit about TPI Group and what you guys do. Yeah, TPI Group is a marketing communications company. It started as a printing business and we grew from that to to add design and then publicity gifts. But we found in the middle of the recession that we really felt that that was probably not the right mix and that we needed to do something different. So we, we tried to add services to the group. We wanted to do it in a way that kept the small company ethos. So we added companies and the quickest way to do that actually was to try and find companies that come on board and, and, and effectively purchase them. So that's that's how we grew and now we've got a much wider range that we're able to offer the same customer base. How do you identify whether a company is worth looking at? Uh, well, one of the companies that we uh, acquired, we asked a customer why they used this particular agency, which was quite small, and this was a very big brand called Bulmers. And um, I asked the brand manager why, and the marketing manager, why was it that they would use such a small agency? And they said they got everything that they could get off a big agency without any of the palaver or big costs and, 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 and overhead. So I, I approached that agency directly and we talked and over two cups of coffee, we agreed a deal and, and went to heads of terms and, and, and that business became part of the TPI group. And generally, would you say that's how it works? You kind of pick up the phone and give somebody a bell or are there some companies saying look any chance you want to buy us? Yeah it can be a bit of a cringer actually Gavin because sometimes when you do approach somebody as directly as I normally do um, it can be thrown back at you for example our very first purchase which is uh, a company called McGill Print I approached the owner of the company twice and both times he said, who told you I was for sale? And he got really annoyed. But it turned out he was for sale. He was just very, very cautious and just a very cautious person. So the direct approach works. But actually, if I had a choice, I'd probably get someone else to have that conversation rather than go directly because it does sometimes uh, come across as a little too pushy and a little yeah. too direct. Well, it's, it sounds a little bit like the, the life of a business journalist, uh, you know, <laughs> approaching a company saying, here you up for sale. Sometimes you do get a, a hostile reaction. I want to ask you about due diligence then. How do you do your due diligence? Well, we normally go through a process where we would try and get some idea of whether the, the, the parameters of the deal were okay. All the time we're trying to suss out, are they the kind of people that we want to do business with? I was given an adage very early in business, which is you can't do good business with bad people. So a lot of the time you're getting to know them as you go through the process of talking about what it would look like, who would run it, what kind of value they see in it, what kind of price they're looking for. And then it comes to a heads of terms. And at the heads of terms, I think most of the key elements have to be agreed, including a date. Once you agree a date, then I think due diligence kicks in. And the way we would normally do that is we would hire an outside expert who's nothing to do with the printed image in terms of their day-to-day work, not not our auditors. We'd go to somebody else and ask them to come in and really give a good kick at the tyres. 
unfortunately, as you'll find in almost every due diligence, you'll be signing a document that says that if they're totally wrong, it's not their fault. So you, you, you still have to use your own instincts. You're going to get a professional judgment on what they see. But just like an audit, it's not always warts and all. And to be fair, in the end, I think the, 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 the responsibility and the risk has to lie with the purchaser. So, so do, you, do you, you hire these people to do this for you? And are yeah. they kind of giving you a report saying, look, here's the financials, take a look at it and see what you think? Yeah, they tend to find four or five things that you wouldn't particularly like. For example, somebody might be doing something with stock that you wouldn't treat the same way. They might be very aggressive or they might be not very aggressive in depreciation. They'll give you those kind of headline things. But really what they're doing is they're taking a snapshot of the business. And in my experience, there's an awful lot more to it than that culture, people, fit, all of those things you need to decide for yourself. But the due diligence will tell you one thing. If it's, if it's a fit business to, to be bought and if there's anything particularly badly wrong, normally that would come up in that in that level. But we've gone to due diligence only after we've been very sure that we're going to do the job because it's an expensive process. So Ted, you're listening uh, to Colin speak here. What's jumping out at you from the conversation? How typical is this of the experience you guys would have at IBI? Yeah, uh, this resonates very he- heavily. Uh, Colin's experience is the kind of experience we typically see. I think he did allude to earlier, sometimes the preparation phase is the most important phase, the phase that says, uh, have we done our desktop research? Have we, do we know the cultural fit? Do we know the personalities that we're approaching? Uh, where are they in their life cycle, particularly on, like, on an acquisition side? The more you're prepared, the better uh, you, you're the likely out, uh, result. Where do you guys come in? Uh, you know, at what point in the process would somebody normally say, OK, I, need, I want to do a deal. I need to get IBI on board to help me do it. Yeah, so IBI, as you know, is a, is a 50-year-old company. Um, it was owned by Bank of Ireland up to a couple of years ago. Uh, a group of our partners uh, bought it out. So we've had 50 years of DNA of Irish um, in the Irish um, corporate sector. So we know lots of people, lots of relationships have been developed over that time. So the key bit for us is to really try to understand the psyche of the, uh, and in turn, the, the growth ambition of Irish companies has been substantial in the last 10, 15 years. The tools to do that are, are, are really expanded, the debt uh, uh, availability, the equity availability. Um, a lot of that driven by the National Pension Fund. ISAF have been seeding lots of yep. debt vehicles, equity vehicles. So there's, there's never been as many tools. The big issue is trying to attract the right, um, the right target. And therefore, we try and spend a bit of time and encourage companies to look at companies that we think would be a good fit for them. So we are quite proactive in bringing ideas and to be more relevant to our customer base. So uh, we spend a lot of time uh, bringing ideas and why we think that makes sense for, for the, for the uh, likely acquirer. So the model then is a company would have you on retainer basically and then you might co- pop in every three months say, oh, we've come across these guys, maybe you'd be interested in buying them. I wish we were on a trainer. Uh, it tends to be more uh, success-led um, and clearly people are always looking for ideas. But we, we do spend time with people who are ambitious. It's very important to understand where they are. So we do spend time and if we can develop that relationship, they tend to tell us a little bit more than they may even tell uh, their own people at their work. So it's it's about that access to information, understanding more about their ambition, understanding their family dynamics, particularly if it's a, an SME rather than a larger uh, Irish family-owned business, because the the, uh, the the criteria they use is quite different. As Colin's describing, it's very personal. If you are the owner or uh, manager of a business, the big thing you're looking for is culture, cultural fit, as well as uh, maybe a product, a geographic spread, whatever that could be. But it has to be a fit, particularly where you're bringing on board management. 
larger companies a little bit different. They may think they have the management skills and therefore that uh, that um, uh, search is a little different because they're looking at more financial metrics and their capacity to build out the business. You mentioned uh, debt and equity there. Really, really interesting point because, I mean, we're in a low interest rate environment at the moment. There's lots of cheap debt uh, washing around. Uh, equity, uh, as you mentioned here in Ireland, ISIF has been pumping money into the system. There, there, there's all these companies springing up uh, who are willing to, to take stakes in businesses uh, uh, and acquire businesses. Talk to me a bit about the, the process for identifying, should I use debt to make this acquisition or should I use equity? Uh, sometimes you have no choice. So therefore, it may be that your capital structure only allows you to access equity. And if that is the case, that's a pretty fundamental shift on how you run your business because you're bringing somebody to your board table and somebody who will have some equity in your business. So that's a very fundamental shift for some people. More and more people are accessing debt and debt is a function of the pillar banks, which is the conventional debt that we all know. But there's quite a bit more in that kind of debt stack where the risk, the quantums, the tenors ultimately decide who you might want to run with. So there are about five venture debt people. There are five. What do you mean by venture debt? So venture debt is probably the outer limit of where people will go. So there's actually an equity risk associated with what they're doing. So they're bringing on board uh, uh, equity, sorry, debt with equity type characteristics. So the 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 uh, the interest rates tend to be uh, in the double digits. It tends to be with a tenor is three years, but ultimately uh, the people are looking for the capacity for the company to pay them back. So they spend a lot of time on their cash flows to understand how whatever uh, the, the, the logic for why they're accessing that debt, they have the capacity to pay it back. So they're thinking like bankers rather than like equity guys who've got risk in their mind and therefore they're looking for a return on their equity. So it tends to be between 5 and 10 million, tends to be 10% plus, tends to be kind of three-year uh, money. They tend to penalise you if you don't use it for the three years. So it is... But it, it suits people. It, sorry, it suits certain people, particularly where there's fast growth involved, where they can see a return. They're willing to pay that interest coupon. Yeah. Not for the faint-hearted. Not for the faint-hearted, yeah. absolutely. But in turn, there are growth-oriented companies who have a particular equity view of life. And if they can create some milestones in that short period, they may double or triple the value. And therefore, it's, that may be the time to go and access equity. Have you used debt or equity, Colin, uh, um, for your deals? We used uh, retained profits on the smaller deals and borrowed money on the on the bigger deals. Um, there was one particular bigger deal which I was quite comfortable to borrow the money because I thought to myself, if the if the bank lend me the money, they've also done their due diligence on the deal and will be comfortable with it. We looked at it, that particular deal was in the millions and we were looking for a payback within five years. And one of the things we did which worked very well for us was we put the debt on the new business. In other words, the new business owed that money. Now, we obviously guaranteed it, but the point was that they had to pay it back in that five-year period. So put a lot of pressure on that business and that management to make sure they performed. And it worked really well for us because after five years, we owned the business, the debt was paid, and we and we basically looked on that as a big success. It was a difficult deal at times because the first couple of years, there was a lot of pressure on them to produce yeah. the profit to pay the money. But what we felt was... 
It was actually KBC that lent us the money at that time. Both AIB and Bank of Ireland didn't. They didn't like the look of it. They didn't like the amount of it, the quantum. But but KBC lent us that money and what, what we felt was that they'd kick the tyres and they thought it was a deal that would work. And we liked that in terms of a sort of a safety blanket. When you don't have a huge amount of background advisors and things like that, sometimes going with your gut is a scary thing and sometimes you like to see somebody saying, yeah, I'll back that. That looks right to me. That looks fair. That looks reasonable. This is the Grow Your Business podcast with Gavin McLaughlin. I'm here with Ted Webb, Managing Director of IBI Corporate Finance and Colin Cullerton, Chief Executive of TPI Group. And we're talking all about acquisitions. Ted, uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you guys uh, did your own acquisition. You and uh, a number of your colleagues in management at IBI bought the business from Bank of Ireland. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that deal. Why did you uh, decide you wanted to go down this road? Well, I think there was an ambition in the company. Um, I think there is the, the historical perspective we shouldn't ignore, which is we were owned by Bank of Ireland. Um, there were certain, uh, I suppose, restrictions that the bank had to work within based on the, the financial crisis. Um, we had difficulty retaining people as we, we grew because of the um, because of the the, 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 the criteria that they have to we had to use on that basis. Um, so you needed to be able to pay people a bit more money. Correct. So we're a variable pay business. We would like people to work hard. We're success related. So therefore, if people work hard and we succeed, we need to be able to encourage people to see that there is a, a reason for all of that. In the banking structure, it was difficult to do that. So we encouraged the bank to look at uh, maybe doing varying structures that might allow us to stay within the bank. Unfortunately, they didn't work. So they bo- they both agreed with us that it was probably the right thing for the business. And then it was tried to cut a deal, which was always the more difficult part. Yeah, well, what was it like uh, trying to cut a deal on your own behalf rather than on the behalf of a client? Well, I think uh, I, 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 there was one other party with me who, who led the deal. We had identified um, what we thought was a fair value for the business, and we probably used our own skill to facilitate that. We also had an obligation to the 20-plus people that we had in the business, and we had to give them a vision of how we how we proposed to restructure the business. And on uh, uh, brutally, we had to cut our costs to f- uh, to facilitate the structure we required. And the promise was that if we were succeed, if we were to succeed, we would give them a greater uh, get a greater amount of money than they were getting uh, in a fixed on a fixed basis. You mentioned uh, using your skills uh, to negotiate the best deal, so I want to dive into that. I mean, what does a negotiation look like? How does it start? Yeah, so maybe we'll, we'll step away from the deal we did because that probably gets a little bit close and uh, close to the bone. So when we when we see somebody like Colin who is, has an ambition to grow the business. We identify the sector they're in. We look at the kind of macro trends that are happening out there and we kind of identify what we think may be a fit. The challenge for uh, companies are what are what, what, what is that incremental bit they're looking for? Is it a service? Is it a product? Is it a geography? Is it a team? Is it a new technology? All of those things kind of fit the criteria as you try to assess what looks like a, a good um, acquisition target. Then it's about the ambition, the ambition of the actual company to drive that on. Because, you know, deals are difficult. They're difficult for a number of reasons. One is to get the pricing right. One is to get the culture broadly. You assess that culture. Is it a fit? What level of integration is required? And if you're bringing on something quite different than what the core business, for brutally the survival of that business, you know, you, you then have to trust that you're bringing on board people who can maybe work with you to make that happen. So there's a lot of balls in the air. The actual, ironically, the actual value of the business is probably a secondary piece that becomes a function of should we do it, and if we are to do it, at what value. 
And then structures come into place because a lot of the acquisitions we try to do, uh, we try to mitigate risk. So a level of debt, but not too much debt, a level of equity, but not too much equity. And then there are things in the middle like vendor notes, uh, like uh, air notes, like the structure might mitigate that risk, which I think gets everybody yeah, comfortable. Just explain, so a vendor note is what? A vendor note, it's a seller leaving something behind. So effectively saying, this is a good fit for me. I believe in your business. I believe in your capacity to pay me back. And it tends to be a note that sits behind debt, but in front of equity, which effectively says, if I'm selling a business for 10 million, I can attract, or sorry, buying a business for 10 million, I can attract 4 million of debt. I got 4 million of equity in myself but I can't get to the 10. So so in other words, the person selling the business basically lends the buyer 2 million and it hopes to get paid back if everything goes well. Correct. So it, it, it tend, they tend to get the 8 million and they leave two sitting on the basis of certain criteria. You've got to satisfy the bank. So you've got to understand a little bit about the combined business, their debt structure, and therefore we try and do both sides of that deal where we get to a particular point. And that typically works where management buyouts is a, is a, is a very significant aspect of that kind of um, uh, structuring uh, where there's somebody who knows somebody and then there is just that piece that says the, the, the culture and the fit has been good as the deal flowed and they said this structure looks good but uh, and I understand your capacity to raise funds is limited and therefore I'm willing to work with you. And the earn out of course is basically you know you might give them 10 million up front and if the business performs you know well meets certain targets you might give them another 5 million quid so that's another kind of tool you can have in your box now one thing you mentioned there ted was that you know you may find yourself in a situation where you know you buying the business is maybe the only way to keep this business alive so obviously that gives you some strength when it comes to to negotiating so i, I really want to dig into that you know when you've got somebody across the table from you what are the tips uh, and techniques you use to get the best deal. Yeah, again, going back to kind of first principles, you really have to do your desk research. So you're trying to understand the capital structure, the shareholders, uh, who owns what shares. It's not always the larger shareholder who's driving the business. So there you're trying to understand, is there somebody within the business who's got a smaller shareholding who may want to stay on for the journey with you? Maybe the, the larger shareholder, for varying reasons, may want to step aside. So you've got to think through all of that. So the, the worst thing you could do is pay a lot of money to the guy who's leaving the business and not incentivize the guy who's staying on to help you build out, particularly where it's a new area. So you've got to really think those things through. I think there's a lot of self-awareness with people who are putting the business. If you're, as Colin says earlier, if you make that approach, that might spook them. You've got to try and step into that. The larger deals tend to look after themselves because they, they tend to have a professional management, professional structure, uh, privately owned SME businesses really have to think this through very carefully. And therefore, a lot of what we do is trying to, uh, first of all, understand the structure, as I said, then that emotional piece, do you think they're a seller? There's no point going to them if they're not there. But do you have an idea, say, right, the maximum I'm willing to pay for this business is 20 million, but I'm going to go in and I'm going to offer them 15 million first? Yeah, so again, very careful that you don't insult somebody. You also have to buy for value. Sometimes you don't have the requisite information to make that determination. I suppose you look at your own book first to say, what can I afford? So therefore, what, what incremental instrument do I need? Is it debt or is it equity or is it a, a further supporter? Then you look at their business, desktop, and you get a sense of the cash flow that they can generate. And then you look at the combined debt flow, because obviously you're assuming you're going to buy a majority, so you get access to their cash flow. And all that, th- there's a kind of a formula that falls out of that. Now, that's, that's a value. The question is, do you want to pay that value? What's the risk? There are certain sectors that have higher values because they've got better growth attributes. Certain businesses are maybe on the, who are 
are in retrenchment mode or could be dying in the context of what they could do because of their business sector is has been superseded by technology or whatever. So you got to think all those all things through, but you got to understand. You got to make sure you've got the tools to make it happen, and then based on that formulaic pro- approach, you try and create a relationship. The kind of last thing you want to talk about is is value because you won't get there to understand their psyche without it. But but on your side of the table, you must know what you can afford, what you think is sensible, and why it why it, why your supporters might say. I would support you on that. As Colin said earlier, the banks ultimately, if that's where you're going, they need to be comfortable so they'll do a bit of diligence. So it's a, it, there is a mix in, in relation to it all. What's been your negotiate strategy, Colin? Um, well, we've always come at it in a, in, a, in, a, in a very similar way to what you've just discussed there. One of the things we've always been aware of is because we were buying small businesses and, and, and they were owner-managed, we were always very conscious of the fact that th- those owner-managers might be half and half about selling. So the first thing I always do is say, listen, if there's going to be a situation where you feel you don't want to do a deal, right up until the point of final signing, you can walk away, no problem. And that's one of the first things we say, because I think there's an awful lot of, you know, reluctantly walking down the aisle. And I think the worst thing could happen is if somebody felt they had to do a deal because they were so far down the process that they couldn't pull out. That's a disaster waiting to happen. In fact, I know some deals where they would actually agree in a year's time they'd review the deal and if somebody wanted to, they could back out and and basically reverse the deal. I haven't done that. But we've always said, listen, if you're not comfortable at the very end, before we sign, don't sign. And that puts people at their ease a little bit. And we've always said that value is one of the issues, but not the only issue. So, for example, if somebody's going to want to stay on for five years, that's a totally different value to the business than if they want to go after one. The other thing we've tried to do is we've tried to buy successful businesses that are making money rather than businesses that are on debt's door because we've, we as a business were, were feeling much more confident that we could add to that and we weren't certain we could save you know businesses that were almost gone. And it's funny... I don't think anybody sells a business for a ridiculously cheap price unless they're on death's door, unless they've no other option. So invariably, the person that's selling knows the best things about the business and probably has the best view of the value of the business. So their bottom line, if you can get it out of them, tends to be, you know, a pretty toppy price. It doesn't tend to be a steal or a great value. I've still to come across something that I went, my God, that was brilliant value. How do you get it? How do you get that bottom line out of them, though? Well, I suppose you should start with an offer and, and then you tend to be, you know, for example, the very first company we bought, I made an offer and they um, it was derisory because it was a multiple of profit. They wanted twice what we were talking about. But we figured out a way of actually delivering that value to the owner by way of a property and a few other things that were in the business. The funny thing about a business is sometimes there's actual value locked away in the business. And if you're creative about the way you do it, you can actually make that happen for them in terms of the value. But when we offered this very creative solution to the person who was selling, he turned around and he went, basically, feck off that you're paying me with my own money. And it took an accountant, it took an advisor on his side to take him off, cool him down and say, look, you wanted X for the business. They're giving you X for the business. They're just doing it a totally different way because the multiple he was looking for was far higher than we could pay. But the actual value in the business, if you stripped out pieces of it and he kept the business, he kept the building and a couple of things like that, that basically turned into a really good deal. And and for me, it was a learning curve of how there's always a way to find a value, but there's not always a way to find a partnership. And if you don't find the common ground between you, then to be honest with you, it's going to be it's going to be a very difficult business to work. 
Because remember, these people tend to stay with the business for a period of time. So if they hate the deal you've just done, like they're not going to run. You're creating problems for yourself down the line. For sure. Yeah. This is the Grow Your Business podcast. I'm Gavin McLaughlin and I'm here with Ted Webb, Managing Director of IVI Corporate Finance and Colin Cullerton, Chief Executive of TPI Group. And this episode is all about making acquisitions. Colin, are there any deals you look back on that you feel... I made a mistake there. I, I should have handled it differently. Yeah, there was one deal we did where we had a a sort of an earn out, a, a kind of a, a a lump of money that was to be paid after a year. And what happened was my accountant at the time and myself were looking at how much of that we should pay. And his feeling was it was a lower percentage than 100%. It was around 80% he thought we should pay. When we made that offer, that soured the relationship between the buyer and the seller. It wasn't a huge amount of money, if I'm honest. It was it was it was tens of thousands, but it was enough for them to feel very aggrieved, and it changed the deal from being what was a very positive deal, one of the rare deals where the buyer and the seller would have said the value was right. It changed from that position to a situation where there was a bit of bad feeling, and that bad feeling grew. And I always regretted that. What that was the was consequence like, of the bad feeling? Basically, a complete break between the previous owner and myself and and the previous owners and the business. So what happened was it was a real walk away. And if you buy goodwill, you can lose it. And and I learned a lesson there about how we lost the goodwill in that in, in that deal. Now, the deal still turned out to be a terrific one for us and we were happy with it. But what I would say is a small amount of money being argued over caused an awful lot of bad feeling. And when I think about it afterwards... And it had an effect on the business. Business, presumably in that this person now wasn't going to stay with it. Two people, yeah. They, they, they basically walked away completely. Now, they were walking away on a year. That was their deal and that was what they wanted. But staying involved and staying, you know, interested in the business, it was certainly worth more than the money that we argued over. And, and in the end, I think that was a mistake. That's one of the few that we looked on and said, you know, that didn't work out very well. But even that deal was, was well worth doing. Ted, what are the most common mistakes uh, you come across when companies are doing deals? Well, I think Colin's point is a very, very, uh, very uh, interesting one. A lot of it is in our situation is brokering the deal. There are certain things you got to leave on the table. There's got to be there's got to be two winners, not a winner and a loser, and that's a function of just the layering of the deal. And sometimes people look for. Uh, we're very conscious that people are, are emotionally attached to certain things, so sometimes you have to facilitate that. And in the context of the overall deal, it, it, it's 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 uh, in, incidental. But sometimes people get into that deal-making mode and every uh, every issue is a battle. And therefore, by the time you get to, there's a kind of deal fatigue, there's issues that are... That, uh, so our job is effectively to try and manage all of that, to try and keep an objectivity to it. There's a goal, there's a price, there are certain things you can seed. Sometimes you think you're seeding everything, but in actual fact, you haven't seeded anything you didn't wouldn't have done under normal circumstances. So it's about trying to keep objectivity, keep emotion out of it, and as Colin said, goodwill is key to all of this because if that leaks, it tends to be a toxic leak. Colin, I want to ask you about sort of the the mental process of, of embarking on, on this strategy that you've done because obviously you're taking a risk here. Mm. Uh, you've decided you're going to buy companies. These deals might not work out and if you had just kind of said you'd just try and grow your sales organically, uh, obviously there's less risk involved in that. So how do you, how does that sit with you that you're taking this risk? Well, I think you try and find the, the, the right kind of people to do business with in the first place. A good reputation is an important thing with a business. And, and if a, a business is worth buying, it has good customers and a good reputation. If you're, if you're buying a bad company, I've never done that, so I wouldn't be able to tell you what it's like. But the risk profile is far, far higher. 
you're always taking a risk. We've started businesses that haven't worked out. So you're always taking risk in business. You start a new product and it doesn't sell. There's lots of risk involved. I don't think buying businesses is some sort of a yellow brick road. It is a difficult process. It's very distracting, very time consuming and can be costly. And even the even the legal sometimes would be hugely expensive. But when you get to the point that you've bought it, I think it's really important that you don't put it on the shelf and leave it. You have to have bought it for a reason. You have to get involved in it. So, for example, any of the businesses that we ever purchased, we always made sure we showed up. Sometimes they kind of look at you as if you have two heads going, why is he here? But the answer is to make sure they know you. it mattered to you that you bought this business. We've never bought a business and just kept it as a little trophy on the shelf. We've always tried to integrate into it. And one of the best deals we did was one where we ran the business separately for three years before we amalgamated with our, our print business. And we did that because we wanted to learn what they did well. So what we did was we bought a business to learn the things that they did well. We didn't buy the business to go, we're the best and they're not. They did brilliant things in that business that we didn't do. So we learned a lot in the three years before we amalgamated them. So I think the really important thing is make sure that you're getting the most out of the deal, minimising the risk. And it's not always the money, the sales or the profits. Sometimes it's the know-how. Sometimes now it's the staff. If you've got really brilliant staff in a business, it is so hard, as you know yourself, it's so hard to get good people that if you bought a business with good people, that's the add-on, that's the extra, that's the dividend you didn't expect. There is a risk and when you buy a business, I do believe it's very rare that you're you're buying it at a bargain price. It's very possible you could lose all of your money. But that's where you, you make the decision. Can you afford it? You don't buy it. Well, I haven't bought a business that was so big that it would sink us or do a deal in such a way that we wouldn't survive it if it was a complete meltdown. I'm glad you brought up the topic of integration because I think it's the thing that that gets forgotten the most and people get excited by you know, the prospect of a deal or whatever. And it's easy maybe to forget that you have to actually bring this company into your family, so to speak, afterwards. So you mentioned one of the things you have to do is, you know, be present and and, and uh, engage with them and all the rest of it. What are the other things you need to do to integrate a business properly? Well, one of the most important things is the very first day when you're you're arriving with this deal. Some people will be very unhappy about that. Because They've, they'll be afraid they might get sacked. I, I, without a shadow of a doubt. Or they might have been on a succession plan. So in other words, they might have been on a, on a, on a, on a path to running or owning this business. There's, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful politician stuff going on that you have no sight of. And most businesses that I bought, we had no integration until after the deal was signed. The first day that you announce that deal, it's really important that you do reassure people. So in every case, with every single deal we did, we told the people in the room, there's going to be no redundancies. Nobody's losing their job here. So at least that started it on a positive. But I still think there's a funny dynamic between being the acquirer and being the the, the company that has been purchased. There is a feeling of kind of a little bit of... "Mm," from the people who weren't beneficiaries of the deal itself. And I think you have to work very hard to make sure they feel the upside of that. Otherwise, what will happen is they'll just, they'll either either tone down their performance or maybe they'll leave. And I think that's a real shame because you buy a business and it tends to be the group that's there. If you lose them over time, I think it's a pity. And certainly we've seen that where there's probably a different dynamic between the company that's buying and the company that's selling. And sometimes morale can be badly affected if it's not handled yeah. correctly. And I, I'm interested that you, you've made the decision not to make redundancies because, I mean, in a lot of cases, it'd be the, the sole reason for an acquisition is, you know, say you can combine your marketing team with their marketing team. Uh, you don't need everyone and you can reduce the overall cost by 40%. So 
I mean, have you not been tempted to do things like that? Well, rather than I sound like a saint, we've had redundancies in our business. We've always right-sized our business when we've had to, but we've never bought a business and made redundancies at that time. And even when we brought those two businesses together three years after running them apart, we didn't have any redundancies at that time. And the reason for that was we wanted to grow the businesses and we felt that we could do that with the people that were there. And I think that helps the dynamic of, of change. I, I, I've said a few times that the only humans that like change are babies with dirty nappies. When, when people are given a chance to change, I think they often feel a very much huge amount of anxiety. I would, anybody else would. And I think the key is that you try and reassure them. So my feeling is, if you can, make sure that the businesses stay very much the same and then grow. And if over time those people are are, 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 are not needed, no business can afford to just ha- have people sitting there. And I think it's really important that that's done in a thoughtful way because you're dealing with human beings and, and it might be a big deal <laughs> to you or it might be a financial deal to you, but it's a job and a career t- to other people and you have to handle sure. it that way. So as we look forward then... Um, any more deals in the pipeline? Well, I've never managed to sell a company in my entire uh, 29 years in business, so I don't seem to be good at that end of it. We are looking at certain businesses and we are looking at certain sectors. One of the problems in the last two years has been people's expectation of, of uh, value has been a little bit out of sync with what we could see. Why is so, that? Well, I, I think people felt that things were going to get better and better and I think Brexit this year has really changed that. So we think next year might be a good year for us in terms of people having reasonable expectations of return. When somebody says to you that their business is about to double and you're thinking to yourself, well, why are you selling it then? Like, it doesn't make sense that businesses don't tend to double unless they're in a really fast growth area that has a reason to double. So what we do in our areas, we, we tend to have steady growth and, and, and values that reflect that steady growth. So multiples can't be astronomical. So we'd nearly prefer, you know, tougher times are nearly easier to do deals, if I'm being honest. It's much easier to talk turkey and, and be realistic with somebody in an environment where the economy isn't booming. And certainly the normal economy outside of the high tech is seeing a tougher year this year than it has previously. Yeah, Ted, I want to get your take on that sort of the macro environment. Uh, If you're a company that's listening to this and and you're looking at doing a deal, what are the the kind of factors you need to be aware of, you know, around people's expectations of valuations, etc.? Yeah, so it's it's a very good question because it really depends on the sector. It depends on the geography. It depends on lots of elements. But as Colin said earlier, things have certainly dampened. Um... A, a, a good example of a company we've sold recently where uh, when Brexit was announced, they had the, the sterling was 68p, went to 85 very quickly. That was an 8 million business, EBITDA, uh, went to 6 million very quickly uh, off the back of just an exchange rate. And that's how fundamental that was. Again, the acquirer characteristics are very important. Some people see through cycles and they're into intergenerational transfer and are willing to pay prices that reflect that. Private equity, you know, they tend to have a five-year time horizon. So anything that might be a blip on the horizon has a bearing on how they view it unless they plug it in. So the characteristics are are broad. Uh, We're very busy. Uh, A lot of us to do with growth capital, going back to our earlier sentiment. Big deals tend to be on hold at the moment because there is that kind of global uh, uh, issue around the Chinese-US trade war, the the Brexit, the the uncertainty associated with that. But we've also seen uh, a lot of bilateral deals where large strategics have come in, identified Ireland as a, as a geography uh, and as a stable environment, and a beachhead into Europe. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. And I would say 50% of our deals in the last 18 months have been bilaterals as opposed to processes, which is interesting. Ted, if we look back 15 years ago, 
would you say that if you compare then to now, we're seeing more people like Colin, more people who are putting a heavy emphasis on growing via acquisition who want to do uh, more deals? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think when IBI, when I joined IBI 25 years ago, we 90% of our work was sell side. I'd say 60% of sell side now. The balance is all uh, either fundraisings for growth or acquisitions. So the ambition has been uh, exponential in the context of Irish family-owned businesses who are who have ambition to grow. That's, I think, is the maturity piece. I think there are people who have come through cycles. There is a lot of sectoral uh, disruption. So therefore, there's in, a lot of in-country consolidation, which you got to have scale. So that kind of facilitates some of the deals. Uh, the tools for deals, as I said earlier, are there. The debt's there. The equity is there. Partnerships are there. Structures are there. The whole ecosystem is much broader. A lot of the things have, that have really helped us, FDI have helped us tremendously, where they have spawned off other people who want to create their own businesses in those sectors like pharma, TMT, uh, media, um, so uh, medical device. So it's, 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 I wouldn't say it's buoyant, but certainly the ambition is significantly higher than it's ever been. If you look back in your career, is there any any particular deal you'd say, oh, we should have taken a different approach on that? Um, something that you say, look, maybe we made a mistake there. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, lots of them, unfortunately, but, but but the primary ones have been, I think, kind of alluded to it, particularly when you're dealing with smaller businesses, which I think we're probably the emphasis is on here. It's about humility. It's about the capacity for the acquirer to really understand that broad range. It's not about ego. It's about incremental growth. It's people who are passionate about what they're doing and therefore that function of making the connection. And sometimes the connection is made for uh, reasons that probably aren't true, which is either overly ambitious, uh, people who have been funded too easily and therefore haven't thought through the kind of issues associated with deals. So it is about preparation. I know I've said this earlier and it probably suits me to say that, but it is that capacity to ensure that you think through the emotional stuff, the integration stuff, the structuring stuff, as Colin said earlier, making that first move. It's very and, important. And, and do you have to tell clients, look, got to park the ego here. You think you can get away with this offer, you won't. Yeah, so the way we work, um, we have four or five divisions. The vis- division we're talking about here is mainly the family intergenerational businesses. So either they're buying or selling and they tend to be owner managed. Uh, the journey from making the decision to do something, anything, to doing it could be five years, could be three years, could be two years, could be one year. It's like a confessional piece. It's like an appeal in the onion. It's like they only in time give you that sense of really what they want to do because there are things that are that they're not quite sure about themselves and are trying to get a deeper understanding. So we need to have 20 deals on the books of which three or four fall off hopefully every year, maybe five or six if, that, if you're lucky. But you've got to monitor, you've got to look after. Sometimes you've got to slow the pace to uh, speed up the pace. You've got to work with the client. You can't allow a timetable to drive everything because it just doesn't work. You've got to have the patience and you've got to allow uh, setbacks and there will be setbacks along the way. People's misperceptions, our key role is to try and preempt them, work with the acquirer and try and have the ear of the seller. If they have an advisor, great, you, you tend to know them. And if you don't, you're trying to manage both constituencies. And by the, the best deals we've really done where we facilitated the deals as opposed to we've negotiated the deals because as we said earlier the price is one thing but there's a labyrinth of other issues that if they're not addressed and the smallest of issues as Colin said earlier it could be an incidental issue that you deem to be incidental that that you know collapses the, the whole thing yeah. so you've got to think it through and be you know mostly intelligent to what the, the needs might be Finally then Colin I'm, I'm going to get your top tips for businesses listening if they want to go and buy a business what would be your advice? 
Um, well, I have a five tips I came up with quickly there. Um, one was uh, pay your own fees and ensure the seller pays theirs. Because if you are paying for the full legal process, I think it can go on and on and on. So we always say we'll pay our fees, you pay yours. And instantly the seller has an interest in getting it done reasonably quickly. Um, I always agree either side can walk away at any time uh, up to final signing. I said that's that that's it to me is an important point. Um, ensure you have um, not maxed out your elasticity early on this is to your point if you've no if you've nothing left in in the tank as you go towards the final uh, negotiation to be honest with you that deal won't happen so if you've maxed out the price you'll pay 100% to the last penny or the, the, you know that the, there's no the, the, there's bad feeling already in the mix then the final furlong will just will <coughs> just will not work because there's huge pressure at the very end very close to signing small little things company cars expenses things like that come into play and if there's no goodwill left at that stage on both sides then the deal won't happen um and then i i said it earlier uh, don't try and do good business with bad people in my experience that's just impossible um and Try and ensure that your culture isn't too different to theirs and make sure you have a plan to address that as it happens. If you just go in blindly and think that everything's going to be fine, you're going to find out that's not going to work. Last word to you, Ted. Any other tips you'd add on top of that? No, I think they're, they're fantastic. They're the five really fantastic things. We, If we have somebody coming into us, either acquiring or selling, we've got to understand motivation. So it's trying to understand, have you thought this through? Is there a clear line of path? Um, and if you haven't, maybe set back and we'll do that prep work for you to facilitate that. So it's about preparation. It's about clear line of sight of what you want to do at a macro level. And then the execution piece has got to be those incremental steps, which are culture, value, structure, and giving the time for, t- for deals to gestate. Well, hopefully we'll see some of these tips gestate for people who are listening. Thanks very much for coming in, guys. That's Ted Webb, Managing Director of IBI Corporate Finance and Colin Cullerton, Chief Executive of TPI Group. That's it for this week's edition of the Grow Your Business podcast. We'll be back next Thursday at 4pm and we'll be discussing how to raise debt and how to raise equity from private investors. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify. Talk to you next week. Grow Your Business from Newstalk with Gavin McLaughlin. Thanks to Euronext Dublin, the new home of the Irish Stock Exchange. Supporting business for over 200 years.